Hello and welcome to the April 2021 edition of Aon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and you're joining me on a very dark day. It's not the anniversary of lockdown starting. It's not the mountain of PPF deadlines. It's not even the workmen trying to ruin my podcast recording by digging up the road outside. No, today, after more than five years of loyal service, my toaster has finally given up the ghost. Don't worry, it'll be tough, but I can keep going as long as the kettle still works. Susan Hoare and Sarah Butlin will be popping in later on to talk about the pensions regulator's consultation on a new single code of practice. But first, there's quite a lot of news to get through. We'll start with the budget. This was on the 3rd of March, and the main headline from a pensions perspective was the freezing of the lifetime allowance. This currently stands at just under £1.1 million, and the government's stated intention had been that this would increase in line with CPI inflation each year, but it will now be frozen at its current level for the next five years. Ultimately, this means more people will be caught by the higher tax rates that apply for benefits above the LTA, and the government will get more tax revenue as a result. One other thing worth noting from the budget is an increase in the corporation tax rate. This is due to jump from 19% to 25% from April 2023, although the full impact of this will only apply to companies with profits over £250,000. This might mean we see companies looking to delay contributions to pension schemes until after the change so they benefit from the higher rate of tax relief, although any such proposals would still be subject to funding and regulatory considerations. There have been the usual speculation about more radical changes to the pensions tax relief system, but this didn't come up in the budget. There was even an extra tax day later in March to give us all a second bite at the speculation cherry, but uh, still nothing. I guess we can look forward to more of the same whenever the next budget comes around. One thing that did come out of that tax day was an announcement that the government plans to review the taxation framework for DB super funds. The Treasury said, This is an innovative area and it should not be assumed that the tax regime that currently applies to entities and transactions in the Superfund structure or the pension schemes that have transferred to the Superfund will remain unchanged. What that means is anyone's guess at this stage, but we'll let you know when we hear more. The Continuous Mortality Investigation has published its latest set of standard mortality projections called CMI 2020. The updated model reflects an additional year of mortality data but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, no weight has been placed on the 2020 data. This is in line with what the CMI proposed in their consultation a few months ago. However, the CMI has also given users the option of using a new W2020 parameter to place some weight on the new data. All else being equal, we'd expect the new model to lead to a slight reduction in liabilities compared to CMI 2019, typically less than half a percent. The Pensions Minister, Guy Opperman, has released a written statement setting out a more detailed timetable for the secondary legislation needed under the Pension Schemes Act 2021. The climate change governance requirements are currently under consultation and we can expect the regulations to be enforced by the summer. A consultation on the framework for collective DC schemes is due in the early summer, although there's no comment on when the new measures will come into force. The new regulations to prevent pension scams will also be consulted on in the early summer, but the plan there is to bring those into force in the autumn. Consultation on dashboards is due later this year. That will be followed by a parliamentary debate in 2022, and then we're assured that delivery remains on track for 2023. Another consultation on amendments to the scheme funding regime is due later this year. Again, there's no comment on when we can expect the regs to come into force, but this will be tied quite closely to the progress on the pensions regulator's new funding code. 
There are also a couple of areas where we've already seen some progress during this month. So the first of these is the regulator's policy for policing the new criminal offences set out in the Pension Schemes Act. These relate to the avoidance of employer debts and the more controversial issue of conduct risking accrued benefits. TPR's understanding is that the new powers were aimed at addressing the more serious conduct that's already largely within the scope of its contribution notice powers, so they don't expect to change the kind of behaviour they're investigating, but the new powers do provide them with some more options. The consultation includes some examples of situations where TPR would consider prosecution, but there's also a list of factors that would amount to a reasonable excuse serving as a defence against prosecution. This consultation is open until the 22nd of April. The DWP's also launched a consultation on TPR's new information gathering powers, including the proposed fines for non-compliance, and the new employer resources test, which will be used to determine whether a contribution notice can be issued. This one will run until the 29th of April. This month also saw the publication of TPR's new corporate strategy. TPR considers this to be a blueprint for the future of pensions regulation, and it looks ahead over a 15-year time horizon, during which they're expecting to see a fundamental shift in pension saving in the UK from DB to DC. As well as this longer-term view, there's also a focus on the short-term challenge of protecting millions of savers as the country recovers from the COVID pandemic. In other TPR news, we understand that this year's annual funding statement won't be published until late May or early June. This year's statement will be directly relevant for any DB schemes with valuation dates on or after the 22nd of September 2020, so there could be some out there who are already well past their valuation dates by the time the statement comes out, although the delay isn't that different from the one we saw last year due to the initial COVID impact. And finally, back in September, I told you that the Work and Pensions Committee had started a three-part inquiry into the impact of pensions freedoms for members of DC schemes. The first part looked at pension scams, and now they're moving on to the second part. This will examine the options available to savers when they come to access their pensions, the advice and guidance on offer, and the information people need to make an informed choice about retirement products. The WPC have issued a call for evidence on this with a list of 10 questions, and they're looking for responses by the 14th of May. The final part of the inquiry on saving for later life will follow later this year. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. As you've already heard, the pensions regulators had quite a busy month. And another thing they've put out in the last couple of weeks is a consultation on the new single code of practice. Susan Hoare and Sarah Butlin have joined me today to talk about this in a bit more detail. So before we start, can I just ask you to both introduce yourselves, please? Sure. So I'm Susan and I lead Aon's specialist governance team. I'm also a trustee and a scheme actuary, so I bring a number of different perspectives to this matter. Hi, I'm Sarah and I'm part of Aon's specialist governance team and I'm also a senior pensions consultant and currently carrying out a pension manager role for one of our clients. So I'm also looking at this from a number of different perspectives. Great, thanks. So, Susan, I know we've talked a bit about this on the podcast before, but it's been a while. So can you just give us a quick refresher on what the single code is? Sure. So this is a consolidation of 10 of the existing codes of practice into one single code, and it's designed to be presented online with the content interlinked. And the regulator's also taken the opportunity to remove a lot of duplication that exists within the current codes of practice, 
So, for example, if you previously looked up the requirements on managing conflicts of interest, then you'd have probably found this in four separate codes of practice. And so being able to remove this duplication does really cut down the quantity of the code that practice that we need to look at. It's also worth noting that this is currently released as a consultation, which will run until the 26th of May. Thanks, Susan. So, Sarah, can you just give us a quick run through of what the code actually covers? Sure. So the new code is made up of 51 individual modules, which sounds a lot, but each one is only a couple of pages long. It's split into five sections covering governance, funding and investment, administration, communication with members and reporting to the pensions regulator. The code will apply to both private and public services schemes, and this has resulted in a new definition, that of the governing body. So the regulator has defined the governing body as an umbrella term, which captures lots of different parties involved in running the different types of pension schemes, from occupational schemes to public service schemes and personal pension arrangements. So for example, this term covers trustees for an occupational arrangement, scheme managers or pension boards for public service schemes, and the, the managers of personal pension arrangements. So I guess the obvious question here is, why, why does anything actually need to change? Why couldn't we just continue with the, the existing 10 codes of practice that we've already got? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Ricky. And, and the regulator cites some of the reasons as being just a need to publish additional information about schemes extra public scrutiny of pension schemes. And then I guess because this has been out for so long or been talked about for so long, they're now adding things like growing concerns about climate change and also developments in things like the pensions dashboard. But I think primarily this is a tidying up exercise and an opportunity for the regulator to simplify what they have at the moment. I think for us as a user, what's quite helpful is the code is much more direct. And so it, it's much clearer what the expectations are. And these are set out typically in a checklist. And I'm told if you'd read every single word of every code of practice that existed in the past, you'd have reached the same conclusions. But now we don't have to go hunting for it. It's much easier that these checklists exist. But the one kind of negative thing I would say is that it now applies for both private and public service pension schemes. And I found this quite confusing as a user. For me, it interrupts the flow. So if I'm reading about the requirements of a private sector scheme, it might then deviate off and move into what the requirements are for a public service pension scheme and then go back to additional requirements of a private sector scheme all in the same section. So for me, that's quite hard work and something that we probably haven't had to deal with before when private service pension schemes had their own single code of practice. Okay, so Sarah, coming back to you, what are the new features in this code that aren't just being carried forward from what we had before? So broadly, Ricky, what is new really does depend on the type of scheme that you are. So the regulators included a really helpful summary of what is new for each type of scheme in the consultation document. The differences on what's new is between DB, DC and public service schemes. So for a DB arrangement, for example, there are 27 new modules. For DC arrangements, there are 21. And for the public service schemes, there are 12 new modules. So if I look at the administration section, for example, a lot of those modules are new. Seven out of 10 modules are new for all schemes 
although they are based on the existing regulator guidance. The new materials in this section cover things like maintenance of IT systems, data monitoring and cyber controls, and these are things which have been high on the regulator's radar for a number of years now. Within the funding and investment section, there are eight modules, with six of them being new for DB and DC schemes. The governance section includes the new requirements which were introduced by the IORP 2 in 2019. And this includes the requirement to have an effective system of governance. This section also introduces the new areas like the requirement to have an own risk assessment carried out a risk management function and business continuity plans. These are the big changes and we would expect even the well-run schemes to have some gaps in this area. What isn't clear at this stage is how the new requirements on risk fit relative to what we already have within what was a well-defined topic covering both risk registers and also integrated risk management plans. Finally, I think the last 12 months has shown us all that it's important for trustee boards to understand their risks and have in place contingency plans where appropriate. In our view, robust risk management planning is really important, but it may be surprising for some schemes given that this new code is being set out as a consolidation and a tidying up exercise. Okay, so Susan, long-time listeners might remember that we spoke about this a little bit just over a year ago, and that was actually the last interview we did in person before lockdown started. At that point, you gave us a, a summary of what was likely to be in the new code, so I just wondered how different this proposed version is from what you were expecting last year. That was a long time ago, and I can't believe that was the first, the last in-person session you did. That was probably the last in-person meeting I did around that time as well. And definitely pension schemes will be forgiven for forgetting this was actually coming because it's been such a long time. I think that the main areas around governance we were expecting and the IOP2 requirements that Sarah has set out has been some of the key areas we were kind of setting out and managing schemes expectations on what was going to be new. What's surprising is, as Sarah has set out, the number of new modules. And that's mainly because the regulator's taken the opportunity to elevate some of their existing regulatory guidance. So regulatory guidance being best practice, if it now falls within a code of practice, then it's more mandatory legal requirement or regulator expectation. So a number of those administration sections, as well as some of the new parts of what's in the investment, were previously guidance have now been elevated into this code of practice. So I don't think we were thinking that was coming the last time we spoke. So a little bit of a surprise there. But primarily, the, the new pieces that have not come from existing guidance that are around risk. So the pieces that Sarah were talking about there around the, the own risk assessment. And, and the piece that is really not clear is how does that fit with all the other things that you already do on risk? So you already have an integrated risk management plan if you're a DB scheme. And how does this fit with that? And, and some of that's really not clear at the moment. And just to wrap up, Sarah, what would you say schemes should be doing if they want to check their compliance with the new code? So for me, I think I would recommend that schemes work through the five sections of the new code and to look for any gaps with what they currently do. So there is quite a lot here with 51 modules, as I said, 
And I would suggest reviewing one section at a time, probably starting with the governance section, which is the one with the most changes. Having said that, immediate action should be balanced with waiting for the consultation outcome at the end of May, because it isn't yet clear what the final position will be. However, to give yourself the most time to comply, it is worth at least starting to think about some of the big changes like the scheme's approach to risk. Okay, yeah, and as Sarah just said there, um, don't forget this is just a consultation. So if you've got any strong views on any of the proposals, you've got until the 26th of May to give feedback to the regulator. So I think that covers everything for today. So thanks to Sarah and Susan for joining us. And who knows, maybe by the time you next come on the podcast, we'll be back to doing these in person again. That would be nice. <laughs> Very nice. Right, that's all for now. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Sarah Butlin and Susan Hoare. I'm off to research the latest developments in the world of toaster technology, but I'll be back for more pension stuff next month. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.